Good morning. We're going to be continuing in the, the gospel of Matthew. Christopher had just finished up uh, with Jesus talking about eschatology, the, the end times. And uh, we're going to be going through a, a continuation of uh, that story, picking up where we left off in Jesus' story as, as the tensions amongst the Romans and the Jews and, and uh, even the Gentiles who were there for Passover, the tensions really start to rise uh, around this, this Jesus who calls himself the Christ. So we're going to be in Matthew 26, 1 through 16, and we're going to be starting off in uh, verses 1 through 5, setting the stage. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So we have our Jesus at, at Passover, and, and uh, so we're really just two days out from this uh, the whole Passover stuff with Jesus at the, at the cross and uh, that whole story. And, and Jesus had just finished his teachings on eschatology. And Matthew caps it off here by saying, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, <clears throat> likely hinting at, well, this is the end of Jesus' formal teaching of the disciples as, as a rabbi. This, is, this caps it all off. And uh, the disciples here, probably noticing that, that Jesus' tone is, is starting to change. And Jesus, he was always careful with his words, but the closer they got, the, the, got to imagine, the more weight would have been there on, on his words and uh, likely beginning to be unbearable. Jesus is thinking of, of everything that he needs to leave his disciples with before he goes. Kind of like the same way uh, a terminally ill patient might leave his, their loved ones, preparing them for what's to come. And it's in these moments that it's, it's impossible to think of all the things that you, you must teach them before you leave, but if your time is short, you want to make sure that the most important things are communicated. Jesus knows that they want him dead. He's known that for a long time. But it's getting closer and closer. It felt real before, but now it feels imminent. And I think that in these moments, uh, a lot of times the, the greatest teaching moments, the greatest discipleship moments can come out of that. The greatest discipleship moments can come in the greatest hardships. We might call these, these moments pivotal moments. And those, those are the events in your life where it feels like everything changes, where everything changes. It, those things might be good, they might be bad things, they might be uh, just major events in your, in your life, but it shapes, pivotal moments shape who you are. They, view how you, they change how you view the world. They change how you uh, operate in relationships, how you operate in your job, how, what your life is focused on, what you choose to say and do, and, and how you orient your life. Those pivotal moments can change everything. And those, those things are, are what testimonies are made out of, and God still uses that, that kind of stuff today. And, and the disciples are here, and they're going through one of their last pivotal moments with Jesus. 
And Jesus knows that he has huge influence over them, that, that he shouldn't squander that. He, shouldn't, he should make sure that everything, the most important of what he has to teach them, the most important of what he has to leave them with, with is, is said before he leaves. So we have Jesus here with the disciples, and then, of course, it mentions Caiaphas. Caiaphas is, is the high priest. He's a master at his craft. He knows uh, he has to play this just right. Like maybe he's thinking if I could get someone on the inside. So last time I was up here, we, we went over uh, the population of Jerusalem at this time. So we don't know the main, the, the full population of, of Jerusalem year round, but somewhere around twenty to 80,000 people. But during this time, uh, that number could have grown massively. So during that time, historians... Uh, historians suggest that it's somewhere around 2.5 million people, with some of them estimating up to 3 million people in Jerusalem. So Caiaphas knows that he has to get rid of Jesus for a lot of reasons. He, he knows that he wants to keep his own power. He knows that he has to make sure he appeases the, pe the people because they don't want a, a, a riot going on around him. And yes, he has to keep the Romans off his back. Because Caiaphas, he was an expert politician. I get it. Yeah, politician, the high priest. Doesn't sound great. But it's true. For quite some time, this role had been as much political as it had been religious. The Romans, they're the ones in charge here. And they would need the, the high priest to fall in with their demands. They needed at times for the high priest to do their bidding. The Romans would appoint a new high priest as they saw fit not the Jews. And the, they would make sure that whoever it was, that they would conform to what they needed of him. So because of this, within just over 100 years of the Romans appointing the high priest, uh, around 104 years of the Romans appointing the high priest, there had been 28 high priests. So like three to four year terms, right? Well, Caiaphas had lasted an unprecedented amount of time. Caiaphas was there for 18 years. And his father-in-law, Annas, was, he was a legend as far as high priests go. He held it for nine years. So the family had substantial influence. In fact, Annas had five sons, and they all had served as high priests at one point or another. Most of them only served around three years or even less. Then none of them served for that long, but all five sons had served as high priest. And then there was Caiaphas, Annas' son-in-law, who served for 18 years. So he knew the game better than anyone. He had no problem doing what had to be done as long as it meant, it, as long as it meant he got to keep his seat. The last thing the Romans wanted was civil unrest from the Jews or this self-claimed king rising up and overthrowing the government. Caiaphas knew that he, he couldn't take out Jesus while uh, all these crowds were there, because it would just end up in, in riots, as it says here in the passage. Certainly, his plan would have been to wait until all the people had dispersed, till everything was kind of quiet again, and uh, take care of it at that point. So we have uh, Caiaphas, we have Jesus with his disciples, reminding, him, reminding them of his future. 
and we're going to move on. Verse 6, anointed for burial. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at a table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So Jesus is at Bethany in the home of Simon the leper. So Simon the leper most likely was someone who was healed at this point. This point. Might have been Jesus, we don't know, but Jesus was reclining around the table for a meal, as they would, as they would do, and a woman comes up and pours this, this bottle of perfume on his head. And uh, uses up the whole bottle, and, and the disciples are upset and all that. And uh, most of these guys, most of these disciples, we got to remember, they weren't ones of significant wealth. Most of them. And they knew the expense of what was just done. And so they get angry. And this, this bottle of perfume was probably worth up to a full year's wage. Like, it's no joke. It's a lot of money. And they think, well, the amount of good that we could have done if we had just taken that bottle and sold it and given all that money to the poor, like, I kind of get it. I kind of see their point. They're kind of right. But Jesus, he takes this, this time to teach them something more important. He says there's always a time for extravagant, for extravagant love for Jesus. But in this moment, more so than ever. And he says, I'm not going to be with you physically for forever, but the poor will be. When I went through uh, Bible college, it seemed like there were always cycles of what books were, were focused on, like brand new books that had come out. And there were all the, always these themes in Christianity that authors wanted to focus on. And one of the years that I was up there, one of these themes seemed to be like this this unrelenting love, this extravagant love, this, this fire within the, the believer. And, and a lot of them use the term reckless abandon. And it's this idea, it's this idea that uh, God inspires this reckless abandon mentality in his followers. And so if, if Christians could tap into, into that love, that uh, reckless abandoned love. It's kind of the same thing <clears throat> when, when God talks about, when, when Jesus talks about having a childlike faith. In Matthew 18, 3, Jesus says, I, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter, enter the kingdom of heaven. So this isn't to be confused with childish faith. Childish faith could be described as like situation-based or shallow or quickly fleeting. Childlike faith is one that hopes and strives without inhibition. 
Reckless abandoned love is, is a love that doesn't seek any kind of moderation. That childlike faith, that childlike attitude and love. Like children, they don't have those kind of inhibitions that adults have, right? Like just this morning, Dean was crying, screaming for like five minutes about a banana that was cut in half. It's like, my brother, my brother, who's had kids a lot longer than me, he has this list of, like, it's, it's kind of mean if they realize what's happening, but list of, of pictures of, like, the kids screaming and then what they were screaming about. I don't know if you've seen any of those, but it's hilarious. Like, oh, the, you know, toy got flipped upside down, or, you know, like, the food was the wrong shape. I don't know. But kids, they don't have those kind of inhibitions. Like, they'll... they'll scream about things, which is kind of the opposite love, and then they'll get super excited about things. Like, uh, just the other day, like, Dean, he, uh, is my oldest, uh, he was super excited about, you know, going to get a treat or, or go see grandma, and he wouldn't stop talking about it, and you can't tell him things too early or else he won't sleep even. And kids, they, they don't have those kind of inhibitions. And that's what, what Jesus is talking about here. And that's the kind of love that, uh, that we're talking about here. And you might describe it as, oh, like young love or, or something like that. And uh, there's, this, there's this author who describes this, this kind of love. And his, name, he, his name's Bob Goff. Now, Bob Goff might see a lot of things one-dimensionally, but he, he really understands love. And he says, true love and this kind of reckless abandoned love is a love that uh, is inefficient. He says, it does things in the least efficient method possible. And I'm like, that's a really weird way of putting it. But if you think about it, it's true. And the disciples probably had... a good heart in, in what they were contesting when this woman poured the bottle of perfume over Jesus' head. But the woman understood, understood something, and Jesus was about to teach the disciples something new, that true love for God knows no reservation. There should be no bounds for the extravagance of, of love shown for God. And in a parallel of, of this story, it talks about this, this woman that comes in and pours a bottle on Jesus' head as being a notorious sinner. He's like, oh, like, well, that makes sense. It's this, this sinner who's being so thankful, over, overwhelmed with God's grace that she maybe wastes everything that she has in honor and worship of him. There should be no bounds for the extravagance of love shown to God. I used to think, see, I used to think that my devotion and love for God flows from my action. But now I know that my devotion feeds my action. The kingdom of God isn't this equation that we need to, to figure out to be solved. It's not this equation of like my work plus God's forgiveness equals saved people, right? A lot of times we want to think about it that way. It's not like building blocks necessarily. It's, it's more like a river where it flows on and you can jump in. You could get immersed and flow along with that river. You could just watch it flow right by. And Jesus at, at the end, he states, 
that great acts will be remembered. What she has done, he says, what she has done will be remembered forever, and extravagant acts of love like this will be memorialized. It's like wherever the gospel is being told, this story is going to be told as well. It reminds me of, the, of the, the passage in Isaiah that says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who bring the good news. It's the feet of those who travel furthest, of those who go to the greatest lengths to share the gospel with other people. You went out of your way the most you're going to be remembered the greatest. It just makes sense. It's these extraordinary acts of, of love, of, of putting God before yourself or putting your neighbors before yourself. And it's never the efficient acts. It's not. It's, the, it's not the, the simple or the cheap acts that get remembered. And you know I know this because everyone, every time everyone wants their actions to be remembered, they do something impractical. Like, we just had Valentine's Day. Perfect, perfect case in point. We just had Valentine, Valentine's Day uh, on Monday. And inevitably what happens is I have uh, one or two friends that do something over the top for their spouse or significant other, and of course it ends up on social media. I'm not bashing what they did or, or how they did or anything like that, but it's just, case, like, it's just what happens. And just an observation, not saying it's bad. Uh, and it's, it's all these posts, like uh, all the things that someone had done for you. Like I, I like to think every time I see some of these posts, I, I think of, the, of a quote from one of my favorite shows. I love you this many dollars worth. Like that's a lot of times that goes through my head. But it's not always money, like just sometimes impractical. Although spending a lot of money is impractical. So I guess that works. Uh, but it's, it's never post like, oh, like my, my husband's, my husband's the greatest. Uh, I was sitting there and the, and the door, door rang and, uh, what do you know? He had a pizza delivered for me for dinner while he was in the other room playing video games. Like, oh man, he is just the best. Happy V-Day, babe. Like it's never, it's never post like that, right? Like that'd be ridiculous. No, it's things like, like, oh, I hadn't seen my husband who's been out on deployment for 10 months, and then all of a sudden he showed up at my door, and he surprised me. Like, it's the, the impractical gestures that signal extravagant love. It's the same people, it's the same reason people propose doing insane things, right? Like flying over a volcano in a nosedive, hanging from a rope while Taylor Swift sings to them live. Like, I don't know what people do, but like, you've seen videos like that, right? It's the whole reason we had flash mobs for that second. It's the whole, it's, it's like, the reason I watched some video of some guy proposing underwater in scuba gear, like, I don't know. But we know, deep down, we know that these impractical gestures are more meaningful, especially when it's done out of a, a heart of love, when it's done out of, of a heart that's pure of, of service for the other person. And where there's one last thing I think we can draw from this, and that's that Jesus wants us to act now. And a lot of times those extravagant pieces, those, that extravagant love, that, that uh, selfless love, it happens in, in the now, like in the moment, like we get a split second to even decide. 
And often God calls us to action, and when he gives us an opportunity, it means now. There's some things that God calls us to do that can be done over, over time, or really any time, but there's other things that we can only do once, and once we pass up that opportunity, that we never get it again. Like, there's a lot of times that, that God calls us to do something. He wants to do it now, and as soon as that, that call and that opportunity turns into regret, like it's past, it's gone. We don't get that chance again. Extravagant love. Reckless abandon. All right, we're going to move on. Verse 14. The betrayal. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. We arrive at one of the most notorious stories of the Bible, or at least the beginning of that notorious story. Judas betraying Jesus. It's obvious that, that he knew what he was doing, but we don't know fully why. The obvious reason is greed. And this is certainly the case in part. And we've seen greed take over other people's lives in very similar ways. And John, he, in, in his gospel, he points, uh, points out when Judas objects to wasted perfume in a, the, a parallel story, he says uh, that the, the perfume, he was angry about the wasted perfume, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Like, that's quite the accusation. Like, he was already an embezzler. So, certainly this played a part in his decision, but I, I would think that if this was the whole reason, then, like, he, he would have gotten a better price. Like, honestly, like, not even joking. Like, there's no bartering. There's nothing like that here. And so I think this was only in part his motivation. I think there's other ulterior motives here. Uh, he could have been frustrated with Jesus. He could have been frustrated, frustrated with Jesus thinking that he was soft. Like the last few days, Judas might have, might have thought, all right, well, here we go. Jesus is upping his, upping his game. He's, he's uh, con confronting everyone. And, and Judas, like a lot of other people, might have thought, well, then now is the time where Jesus is going to take control. He's going to take over everything. And he's upping his insurrection game. Like it's, he's going to step into that power now. But then, like, well, he's just giving himself up to be killed? Like, what is this? We're taking this from a different angle. Maybe Jesus, Judas thought this, this would spur Jesus into action. Maybe he thought that, that pushing him in this way would spur Jesus into action, and finally the, the zealot in Judas would, would, uh, be, would be part of this, this movement into power for the Jews. 
And maybe he thought that this would wake up Jesus and, and he would take power like they all thought he would. And it, really, if either one of these is the case, then Judas' story is, is the tragic story of a man who thought he knew better than God. Judas gave Jesus up for 30 pieces of silver, which is the, the slave's price listed in, in Exodus 21 or Zechariah 11. This is about a half a year's wage. So immediately you make that comparison, that, that correlation, and instantly we, we, uh, we looked at, well, Jesus is honored with, within the same chapter. He's honored with a year's worth of wages in perfume and betrayed with, for a half a year's wage. And it brings me to think loyalty and true acts of worship can cost us. But acts of disloyalty, that, well, that comes cheaply. And so we have the extravagant love and the reckless abandon and then the disloyalty and betrayal. We're going to wrap it up with this. How should we then live? First, we pay attention to the pivotal moments of the people that you love. There's people in our lives that, that we have influence over. There's people in our lives that, that look up to us, that ask our opinions. That there's people who we have significant influence over, and we need to look out for those pivotal moments in those people's lives. That we take those opportunities to... Uh, move them towards God, that we take those opportunities, those opportunities to uh, allow those moments to help shape that person's life and point them towards a, a, a better vision, a, a godlier vision for their life. Second, seek to express your love to God in more extravagant ways. To have that reckless abandon, to remember what it's like when uh, God first got a hold of your heart. To remember even what it's like to, when it's just you and God in silence with your Bible. To have that extravagant love. And lastly, don't hesitate to take part in God's kingdom and what he's asking you to do. Don't miss those opportunities. Seize those moments and don't let what God has asked you to do turn into regret. Would you pray with me, please? God, I thank you for your word. Thank you for your, uh, your story here and that we get to take part in it. Thank you for all that you, you've taught us in other people's examples, and I pray that we would uh, emulate those that you honor and, and that we would uh, learn from those uh, who made some mistakes. God, I thank you for all that you're doing in our lives, and I pray that uh, this, this truth and this call to, to action would ring true in our lives and you would grow bigger in our lives as a result. I thank you, Jesus, and I pray this in your name. Amen.